with me again to 1 Samuel chapter 23. We've been going through 1 Samuel. The theme of this book, which is also the title of this series as we've been studying the book, is A Heart for God. And it's our desire that through this study that God would form and shape within us a heart for him. So uh, let's go ahead and pray one more time as we open up God's word. Lord, we ask that as we open your word, Lord, would you give us ears to hear what you would speak to us this morning? And we do ask, Lord, give us a living word. Give us a word that applies to us and let us see how your word applies to our lives today. That we might not only be hearers of it, but doers of it also. And pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we live in a world where it often can seem like nice guys finish last. I'm sure you've heard that uh, euphemism, but uh, I, I think it's, I think it's uh, often how we feel. Nice guys finish last. That was certainly the case here in uh, 1 Samuel. That's certainly how it looks. We've been looking at the life of David, studying it. This young man who had this incredible heart for God. And David had been striving to live his life in a way that was pleasing to God. But where has that gotten him? He's been trying to live for God, trying to live rightly before God, but where has that gotten him? Well, right now, at this point in our story, he is homeless. In fact, he's not just homeless, but somebody is hunting him, trying to kill him, with an army, nonetheless. So nice guys finish last, right? Well, that's certainly how it seems, at least in this part of our story. Saul, who's the current king of Israel, is out to kill David because David has been called and anointed by God to replace Saul as king. But instead of submitting to the will of God and stepping down like God has called him to do, Saul is bound and determined to hold on to his position as king. He's not going to submit to God's will no matter what. He wants to stay king. And he has declared a personal vendetta on David. He's going to take him down. He wants to destroy him in the hope that he will be able to then hold on to his position. So we pick up our story in chapter 23 where we left off last week where Saul is hunting David and trying to kill him. And here in this section, uh, we're going to see something in David's life. We're going to see how David lives out something that the Bible teaches. This is what God says to us in Romans chapter 12. It says that when someone is carrying out some kind of evil against you, then here's how you should respond. It says in Romans chapter 12, it says, Repay no one evil for evil. Be, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, in a world where it sometimes seems like doing things God's way is less pragmatic, less expedient, in a world where it sometimes seems like nice guys finish last, God's word tells us that we are called to overcome evil with good. Because you know why? That is exactly the heart of God. That, and that is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. On the cross, God overcame evil with the ultimate act of goodness, with the ultimate act of love. And we are called to live out the heart of God in our lives as well. By not being overcome by the evil that surrounds us, but by overcoming evil with good. Here in this section, we're going to see how David was able to do just that. And, and as we study this, I encourage you to to consider how these things might apply to your life, the situations in your life. What are those areas in your life where God wants you to overcome evil with good? We're going to pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 23. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. Now David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. 
And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Once again, we see this beautiful friendship that we have seen a couple times already here in 1 Samuel, this friendship between Jonathan and David. Here's David. He's in the wilderness. He's going through one of the most difficult periods of his life. You can imagine if somebody was hunting you to kill you, that would be hard. You're living in caves. That's hard. And he's going through a difficult period. He's most definitely struggling with discouragement. He, he's having a hard time. And here is his friend Jonathan who risks his life to come across and meet David and spend a little bit of time with him. And during this time that Jonathan is there with David, we read this incredible thing that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord. He strengthened his hand in the Lord. That means that Jonathan helped David to find strength in the Lord during this difficult period in his life. In spite of the fact that Jonathan's father was Saul, who was trying to kill David, Jonathan and David were good friends. We read about how they became friends. We read about it back in chapter 18. What happened was, right after David fought Goliath, Saul invited David to come to the palace and spend some time with him. And while David was there in the palace, he got to know Jonathan, Saul's son, who also lived at the palace. And Jonathan and David became quick friends because they quickly came to realize that they both shared the same heart for God. They both had this burning passion to know God and to live for God. They had a desire to see God do great things. And they were willing to step out in faith and allow God to even do great things through them if that's what he wanted to do. The foundation of their friendship was that they shared the same heart for God. And that created a bond between them which was thicker than blood. And so here we see Jonathan. He was, he's risking his life to visit his friend David and encourage him during this very difficult time in David's life. What a blessing it is to have friends like that. Let me ask you, do you have friends like that? Friends who strengthen your hand in the Lord. I hope you do. I, I hope that, uh, that, that you have friends who, who would strengthen your hand in the Lord, especially during difficult times. You know, one of the things that we really want to build and foster here at Whitefields is these kind of relationships, like the relationship between David and Jonathan, relationships that are based on sharing the same heart for God, relationships in which we're there for each other and we're there to strengthen each other's hand in the Lord. You see, here's the thing. Jonathan comes to David, and you know what? Jonathan cannot fix David's problem. He's looking at David, and he says, As much as I would like to just wave my hand and make your problem go away, I can't. But here's what he can do. He can come out to him, and he can strengthen his hand in the Lord. He can spend some time with him and help him to find hope and strength in the promises of God. And that's what he does. He comes to David, and he reminds him of God's promise to him. And he encourages David to take hold of that promise and not let go. You know, to strengthen someone's hand in the Lord, it's got to be more than just platitudes, right? So many times we have platitudes, right? Like, Hard times don't last, but tough people do. And hey, everything's going to be all right. Don't worry. Be happy. But that's not strengthening someone's hand in the Lord. What it means to strengthen someone's hand in the Lord, it's to go beyond the platitudes and to point them to concrete promises of God. To point them to the Word of God and say, here is why you have a reason to take hope even in this time of difficulty. 
That's what David did, or sorry, that's what Jonathan did for David. He reminded him of the promises of God and helped him to find strength in God. But there was one thing that Jonathan said to David which was not true. He told him, you will be king of Israel. That part was true, but then he said, and I shall be next to you. Little did either of these men know that this would be the last time that they would meet. As Jonathan walked away that day, this is the last time that these two friends would see each other. It's not long after this, Jonathan is going to die in battle. This will be David's last memory of his friend Jonathan. His last memory of his friend Jonathan is that Jonathan comes out to him, risking his own life to spend a few precious hours with him to strengthen his hand in the Lord. I tell you what, that's the kind of legacy that I want to leave behind. Don't you? Paul the Apostle, he encouraged us to redeem the time. This is what he said. He said, redeem the time. You know what? Time is short. Life is short. And time is something that we'll ne we're never going to get back. And so Paul the Apostle, the, the word of God, it encourages us to redeem the time. Spend that time you have well. Think about what a precious memory this, is, this was for the rest of David's life. That the last time he saw his friend Jonathan was when he was in a time of great difficulty. And his friend risked his life to come out and spend a few hours with him to strengthen his hand in the Lord. I want to encourage you in this as well. Don't just want to have friends like Jonathan, but be Jonathan to somebody else. Somebody needs you to come to them and strengthen their hand in the Lord. I want to encourage you not only to seek out Jonathan type of friends, but to be Jonathan to somebody in your life. Well, after Jonathan left, here's what we read in verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding amongst us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Come down now, O king, according to your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. David had been hiding out in the wilderness of Ziph, which is near the Dead Sea, and when, David, when Saul shows up, uh, the residents of this area, they come and tell Saul, they say, hey, we're going to help you to catch David. We know exactly where he's at. Now, why would these men do that? Well, here's why. Because in our study last week, we saw how Saul had an entire village of people murdered because he thought that they had been helping out David. And so the Ziphites are thinking, look, we'd better do everything we can to help Saul catch these people because if he even thinks that we're harboring David, he's going to kill us too. So let's read what happens in verse 21. Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord for you have had compassion on me. Right. So Paul's pulling, what this is called is pulling out the, the religious jargon, right? Oh, the Lord bless you guys. You've had compassion on me. Oh, wait, who's the guy that they're afraid is going to murder them if they help David, right? Who's the guy who has an army with him? And he says, thank you for having compassion on me. Compassion? You have an army. You're trying to kill somebody. What are you talking about, compassion? It's not uncommon, though, and we see an example of it here, for people to try to cover up sinful behavior by putting on religious veneer. That's what Saul is doing here. And so what happens as we go down, if you want to follow along, from verses 25 and 26, Saul pursues David, and he's got this tip as to where David is at, and so he goes on, and he's right on David's heels. And just as Saul is, is closing in on David, this messenger shows up, comes out, running out to Saul, this is verse 27, and calls Saul to go and tend to an emergency. 
So Saul leaves right as he's about to catch David. In Psalm 54, we read the song, the prayer that David wrote about this whole incident. David had been praying, we see in that psalm, for the Lord to save him. And he realizes that the timing of this messenger was was from God. It was providential. It was God answering his prayer. And so we continue in verse 29. And David went up from there and lived in the stronghold of Angedi. Now, Angedi is a, a beautiful freshwater oasis, which is in a canyon right where the wilderness of Ziph kind of ends into the Dead Sea. It's a very popular place in Israel. At some point, I would like to take a trip from our church, take some of you who who can do it, and would go to Israel, and I'd love to show you these kind of places. I'm thinking about doing something like that next year, so if that's something you would be interested in, let me know, and, uh, and we'll start planning it. But anyway, En Gedi is a very popular place in Israel. It's actually a national park right now in Israel. It's considered one of the most beautiful oases in the world. Uh, you can see from the pictures why. You're going through this barren wasteland, which is like, if you've ever been to Canyonlands in Utah, it's very similar to that, only maybe more barren. And then it just ends into the Dead Sea where nothing lives. But in the middle of that just completely barren area, there's this oasis of green. It looks like something out of Hawaii. And there's a series of waterfalls that come down in this canyon. There are pools there. And there are caves in the hillside. Some of them are huge caves. I mean, going way back into the recesses of the hills. It was a perfect place for David and his men to hide out. It was a refreshing place. It was a place of refuge in the wilderness, a place where they could be deep inside the caves, out of the heat, and they could send lookouts to go and see if if Saul and his men are coming. And one day, that's exactly what happened. They send a lookout, and here's what happens in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Angedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. That's what Engedi means, actually. In Hebrew, it means rock of the wild goats. Uh, because even to this day, there are these mountain goats that hang out in the area of Engedi. They're called ibex, uh, mountain goats. So Saul goes down to Engedi with 3,000 men, and they're hunting for David. And as you can imagine, uh, how 3,000 men walking across the desert, it would create a huge cloud of dust, which could be seen from, from way far off. And so David and his men, they have this advance notice. They can see this cloud of dust rising up miles away, and they know they, or Saul and his men are coming. And they're probably thinking, oh, does this guy ever give up? I mean, he, this guy just keeps going once again. And so David and his men, they go way back into the recesses of one of the caves there, and they hide from Saul. We read in verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds, this is Saul. Saul came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. So here's, here's Saul, he's with this army of 3,000 men. They're making their way around the area, checking in all the caves and searching every corner and every canyon. And well, as happens, uh, Saul needs to go to the bathroom. You know, uh, that's what it means when it says that he had to relieve himself. So the Bible is a very realistic book. I mean, uh, it deals with real people and real events and real things. And it doesn't get any more real than this. Saul needed to go to the bathroom, right? Have you ever watched the show 24? 
I'm sure some of you have, right? Well, what you notice, there's a couple of things I always notice when I watch 24. The first thing is that it takes Jack Bauer about 15 minutes to get anywhere in Los Angeles at any time of day. That's not, e that's not even realistic. Like, you cannot get anywhere in Los Angeles in 15 minutes. Uh, but Jack Bauer, he just kind of zips around from one end of L.A. to the other, fighting terrorists and saving the world, right? But the other thing I always notice about uh, 24 is that you never see Jack Bauer, like, take a break and go to the bathroom, right? Like, he's just running around fighting terrorists, and surprisingly, he doesn't need to, uh, he doesn't have the same bodily functions that you and I do, apparently. For once, I always think, for once, what I'd like to see is, you know, Jack Bauer, like, pulls into a gas station, runs in, and then you see that, like, ticking clock thing going with the cameras just focused in on, like, the, the bathroom door in the gas station for, like, two minutes. And then Jack Bauer, like, bursts out and then carries on saving the world. Uh, I think that would be a lot more realistic. Well, the Bible here, it's, uh, it's realistic. It tells us what happened. Saul needed to relieve himself. But look at the timing of this. I mean, look at how this happens, and, and you just see how this was completely engineered by God. I mean, what are the chances that Saul is, is, he has to attend to his needs at the very moment when he's passing by the exact cave where David and his men are hiding out? Now, this is no coincidence, obviously. This was engineered. This is providential. This was arranged by the hand of God. The question, though, is this. So God set this all up, right? But why? What is the purpose of this? What is, why has God brought Saul to the very cave where David and his men are hiding out? What's God doing? And that is the very question that David and his men are grappling with in these next few verses. I mean, keep in mind the dynamics of the situation. Some people wonder, how is this even possible? Well, if you've ever been in big caves, uh, outside the cave, right, there are 3,000 soldiers. So you can guess that's probably a lot of commotion outside. And it's bright out there. It's the middle of the desert. You can't see deep into the darkness when you're on the outside. But from inside the cave, from the darkness looking out, oh, you can see everything very clearly. And there is a particular cave there in En Gedi um, that they believe was the cave where this happened. They they're, say they're almost sure because what happens, this cave, you walk in and, you know, for the first couple uh, yards there, it seems like, you know, a pretty small cave. But then it opens up into this gigantic room where they estimate you could have up to a thousand people in there. And so David and his men, they're here in this cave and they're, they're looking out from the darkness and seeing this, you know, army walk by their cave, and all of a sudden the army stops. I mean, try and think, they're freaking out, right? This is panic. The army stops in front of the very cave where they're hiding, and they're probably thinking, oh no, we, we've been found out. We're, somebody must have tipped them off that this is the cave we're in, and now, they're, now we're trapped in here. They're going to come in, and they're probably picturing in their minds how any second these soldiers are going to come in with torches and swords, and they're trapped in this cave. But then, well, one man comes in, and it's Saul, and he's all by himself. He, he doesn't want anybody with him while he's relieving himself. No bodyguards, no soldiers. Saul is all by himself, and David's men see this, and their panic turns into elation. Right in that moment, they say, oh my gosh, David, this is no coincidence. Praise the Lord. Check out what they say in verse 4. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
They say, David, this is it. This is the moment. The Lord has given Saul into your hand. David, God promised you the throne. Here it is, just on a silver platter. All you got to do is walk up and take it. All you got to do, it's, it's handed to you, David. What more do you need to think that this is from God? They said, just do it, David. We've been on the run for so long. We're tired of hiding out in caves. We're tired of wondering who's going to betray us next. It can all be over right now, David. Thank you, Lord. In verse 4, we read this, the second half. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Probably Saul had taken his robe off to do what he needed to do. And David walks up quietly in the darkness and cuts off part of Saul's robe. I mean, imagine the scene. Here's David. He's sneaking up. He's got his sword drawn, quietly sneaking up. And his men are thinking, thank you, Lord. This is all from you. We've been running. It's all over. All our running, our hiding, it's all done. Thank you, God. And David gets closer. Many of the ancient rabbis, they believed that David approached Saul with the intent to kill him. But David, as he gets closer, God changes his heart. And David reaches out oh so quietly and just cuts off a corner of Saul's robe and then silently retreats back to his men. And you can imagine his men there thinking, what was that? Like, what are you thinking? An opportunity like this comes around one time. You don't get a second chance like this, David. God gave you an opportunity and you let it go. How could you do that? You know, David cut off Saul's robe instead of cutting off Saul's head. By doing so, there were several powerful things that he was expressing in that action. First of all, David was expressing this. He's saying this. He has a promise from God that God will make him king one day. And David's saying, when God makes me king, when that crown is put on my head, I want it to have God's fingerprints on it and not mine. You see, David, as he's approaching Saul in the cave with his sword drawn, he's facing a temptation. Either he can take matters into his own hands and make himself king by doing something that he knows is wrong, or he can trust God and do what God would want him to do, and then just trust that God will fulfill his promise to him. The question is, will David repay evil for evil? Will David become overcome by evil, or will David choose to overcome evil with good? You see, David knew that it would have been wrong for him to kill Saul. Why? Because Saul had been chosen, Saul had been appointed by God to be king. God had made him king, therefore it was God's responsibility to remove him. So even though David had this promise that he would one day be king, he knew it was not his job to remove Saul, that was God's job. So by cutting off Saul's robe, instead of cutting off Saul's head, David was making a statement that when the crown of Israel was put on his head, he wanted God's fingerprints to be on it and not his own. He was willing to wait for God to fulfill his promise in his way and in his time. He wasn't going to take any shortcuts. He wasn't willing to do something that was wrong in God's sight just because it would be expedient, just because it would be pragmatic. No, David wasn't a pragmatist. He was saying, I will trust in God. I will do things God's way, even if it means that it's going to take more time, even if it means that it's going to be a harder road, because I have no doubt that if God has called me to be king, that God will make me king, and I'm going to do it the right way. Let me encourage you to have that attitude for your life as well, to do things God's way, 
to not take any shortcuts, to not compromise, and to leave it up to God to bless you in his way and in his time as you do things his way. When David later received the crown, when David became king, you know that he could lay his head down at night with a clear conscience. And what a precious gift that is. He was able to know that God had made him king. It wasn't something that he had taken for himself. But the second thing that David was saying by cutting off the corner of Saul's robe, it was something symbolic. It was all about symbolism. You see, Saul's robe represented, it spoke of his royal authority. And by cutting off part of his robe, David was making a statement. He was saying, Saul's royal authority has been cut off. And Saul knows it. And this was sending a message to Saul. Some point he would put on his robe, he would realize that part of his robe had been cut off, and he would realize, he would be reminded of how God had cut him off as king and that he was not complying with the will of God. From verse 5 we read, And afterward, after he cut off Saul's robe, David was stricken to the heart because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David knew that he did the right thing by not killing Saul. But after he cut off David's or cut off Saul's robe, he is convicted in his heart. He's stricken in his heart that he shouldn't have even done that. He's convicted. He realizes that what he did by cutting off Saul's robe, it was disrespectful. It was rude. And here's why. Because until God removes Saul, David needs to honor and respect Saul because of his position. You see, when you see. How, when you see how David is just convicted about this thing, I don't know about you, but it makes me think, wow, what a, what a soft conscience this man has. What a sensitive conscience this man has before God. Well, I wish I had a sensitive conscience like that because here's what you can sometimes see happen with your conscience, that things that once would have stricken you with conviction, things that have struck to the heart, and you would have been broken about them you would have been just torn up that oh I can't believe that I went and did that now well it's no big deal right you don't feel anything before you would have just been wrecked before the Lord cut to the heart and repented but now even the same action you feel nothing it's no big deal because your conscience has become calloused and seeing David's heart here, I don't know about you, but I look at this and I say, Lord, give me that kind of conscience that's soft and sensitive and active before you, God. Give me that kind of heart that's soft and tender rather than hard and calloused. But you know, if you really think about what David did here to Saul, it's a relatively small thing, right? I mean, cutting off his robe is a relatively small thing compared to what Saul has done to David. I mean, think about, let's weigh the two here, just compare a little bit. What has Saul done to David? Well, Saul took away his job, took away his family, took away his home, and he's been trying to kill him for several years, right? And what has David done to Saul? Well, he cut off a piece of his robe. You see the two there? I mean, really, it's not even comparable. Yet David feels just convicted. He's all torn up about what he's done to Saul. You see, what happens many times is that somebody sins against you, and then you feel justified in sinning against them. Because, I mean, of course, they did something to you. 
Of course you're justified in doing whatever you want, and your attitude can sometimes be, well, I will repent of what I did to them if they repent first of what they did to me. But I want you to see this. That wasn't David's attitude. David said, look, I know that Saul's messed up. I know that Saul has done terrible things to me, but no matter what Saul has done, I've got my own account before God to worry about. I've got to stand before God on my own no matter what anybody else has done to me. David knew that he was not justified in repaying evil for evil, even if what he did to Saul was relatively small compared to what Saul had done to him. God's word tells us, don't repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. And so look at what David does next in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king, and when Saul looked at him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Now, this is incredible. Remember, there are 3,000 soldiers outside the cave who have one mission, to find and kill David. And so David comes running out of the cave into plain sight of all these soldiers. You wonder, David, are you crazy? What are you thinking? You know what David's thinking? He's thinking, This is my chance to show my heart to Saul. And this is my chance to seek reconciliation. Can you believe that even after everything Saul has done to David, David is risking his life, running out there, making himself vulnerable to seek reconciliation with Saul. That is incredible. And so he runs out of the cave into the light, into plain sight of the soldiers who've come with orders to find him and kill him. And he cries out to Saul and he bows down to show him respect. Verse 19, here's what he says. Or sorry, verse 9. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you to me to kill you, but I spared you. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of, wicked, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And whom has the king of, to whom, or after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you to see it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. What a dramatic scene. Saul holds up the piece, or sorry, David holds up the piece of Saul's robe and he says, look, I had a golden opportunity to kill you, but I didn't. Some of my men, they were telling me to kill you. I had every opportunity to do so, but this piece of your robe is proof that I didn't kill you even though I had the opportunity. No matter what you think, Saul, no matter what you've been telling people, no matter what people have been telling you, Saul, I am not at war against you. You are not my enemy, Saul. I don't want to harm you. Even though you've done all these things to me, I am not looking for revenge. I am going to trust God to judge between me and you. You know, Saul has been living in this delusion, telling himself every day, David is out to get me. David is out to get me. And that gives him justification for trying to go and get David and using the army to go and chase him down and kill him. 
And so Saul feels justified because he thinks David's out to kill him, but now this whole delusion, it falls apart. It's shattered in an instant as David holds up this piece of Saul's robe, and, David, and Saul realizes, yeah, if he wanted to kill me, he could have, but he didn't. And now he's risking his life to come and, and set the record straight with me. And here's Saul's response. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you this day, or reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul sees David's heart, and he's convicted, and he realizes that he has sinned, and that he needs to be forgiven. And Saul, this man who has been so proud, that's kind of been his MO, right? He's just so proud. He's so obstinate. He doesn't care about anything, but now this grown man just breaks down in front of all these soldiers and just starts bawling and weeping. And with tears running down his face, says, David, you are more righteous than I am. You repaid me good when I have repaid you evil. You know, this, this incredible and undeserved love that David showed Saul, it caused Saul, it caused his heart to become soft. Rather than repaying evil for evil, David is showing us what it looks like to overcome evil with good. Let's finish it up in verses 21 and 22. Saul says, Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So we see this beautiful reconciliation between Saul and David. Saul has a change of heart. He's crying. He's broken. He's repenting. But there's something weird about the ending of this story, isn't there? Did you notice this? It struck me as weird, at least. It says that Saul went home, but David didn't. Where does David go? He goes back into the stronghold in the wilderness. The stronghold, that's the place where he hides from Saul. Why is he not going home? If everything's cool now, why is he going back into the stronghold to hide in the wilderness? I believe that it was because David wanted to see if this change of heart that Saul had was just an emotional response in a moment or if it would actually cause lasting change in his life. Because David has seen this before. He's seen Saul cry before. He's seen Saul repent before. He's seen Saul promise, I'm never going to do this again. But then Saul did it again. And so here's David thinking, you know what, I'm going to wait this one out. I'm going to see if this is the real deal or if this is just, you know, the emotion. And since probably it was sincere in the moment, but would it have lasting effects? You see, the validity of repentance, right? The evidence of a truly changed heart, it's not found in the emotion or the sincerity of a moment. It is demonstrated by the ongoing direction of your life. Saul had a tendency that many of us also have. He would be convicted in his heart about something he was doing, and he would weep and he would repent in dramatic fashion. But there would be no lasting change. One author said this of Saul. He said, what is the use of saying, I have played the fool, if he goes on playing the fool? What are Saul's tears and confession before David if he does not act upon his remorse? 
Saul's repentance was sincere in the moment, but it didn't translate into ongoing change in his life. And let me tell you, that is what matters. Not that you admit that you've sinned, but that you submit that area of your life to God and that there be ongoing change. Unfortunately, David's fears about Saul will be correct, and soon we're going to see that Saul will once again continue to try to kill David. And let that be a reminder to us about our lives, that what God really wants from our repentance, what, what he wants from our repentance is not just intensity of emotion. He wants ongoing change in the direction of our lives. But here's the point of this chapter, and I'll wrap it up by saying this. David did not repay evil for evil. That's the point of this chapter. In the face of evil that was directed against him, David did not, uh, he was not overcome by evil, but he overcame evil with good. And in this way, David is a great example for us of what it looks like to overcome evil with good. I'm sure that there are situations in your life where you are faced with the temptation to repay evil for evil. I would encourage you, trust in the Lord to take care of that person or that situation, and you focus on not being overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. But even more than that, I want you to see that David pictures for us in, our, in his actions, he pictures for us the heart of God. Saul deserved judgment. He did, absolutely. But rather than judgment, David showed him mercy. Let me tell you, that is what God has done for you. That is the message of the gospel. You deserved judgment, but instead God has shown you mercy. And just as David came out of the cave and humbled himself in order to seek reconciliation with Saul, in the same way God humbled himself and he came down to us. Jesus Christ humbled himself and bore your sins in his body on the cross. He took your judgment upon himself so that you could be reconciled to God. That's the gospel. And you and I are called to come to that place of humble repentance before God where we admit our sin and we give the course of our life over to God. You see, the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, is the ultimate example of how to overcome evil with good. That is what God did for us. And so as we go from here today, my hope is that you will say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I want to be right with you, and I want to live out your heart towards other people. I want to be one who overcomes evil with good, because that's what you've done in my life. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that your goodness has overcome evil in our lives, Lord, in our hearts, Lord, by the ultimate act of goodness and love, Lord, you have overcome evil in us. And ultimately, Lord, you will overcome evil in the world. We thank you for that glorious promise of the gospel. Lord, may we be those who strengthen other people's hand in the Lord. Lord, I'm sure that there are some people here today who need to be strengthened in the Lord. Would you minister to them, Lord? And Lord, would you help us to be Jonathan-type people who seek out people who need to be strengthened in the Lord and give them hope. And Lord, we pray that in the situations of our lives, Lord, you'd help us to be like David, but even more so to be like Jesus and to overcome evil with good. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.